I'm Jason Bailey Losh, and you're listening to Seeing is Forgetting Conversations on Contemporary Art and Culture in Los Angeles and Beyond. Today's guest is Neha Choksi. I was a little bit intimidated to do this interview. I don't know Neha, and I we hadn't met before uh, until she came to the studio to actually speak with me. It turned into one of those things where after we did the interview, we went and got lunch together, and I can tell that we're going to be friends for a long time. She's incredibly thoughtful, really intelligent, and just approaches the work in a way that I can relate to and understand, and we sort of cross paths in the same thought process, I think, in, in a lot of different ways. Here's Neha. Neha, mm-hmm. thank you for coming to the studio. You're welcome. Where are you originally from? I'm from nowhere. I mean, I was born in Jersey. Oh, you were um, born in Jersey. I was raised in India in Bombay, and I moved to L.A. to go to college when I was 17. Oh, see, I was wondering what the L.A. connection was. Mm. Where did you go to? I went to UCLA. UCLA, and you decided L.A. is where you wanted to stay? Um, yeah, pretty much. I mean, I, I love Los Angeles. It's um, so, I mean, it's been home mentally f- since I was 17, even if I have moved elsewhere. Is your family still in Jersey or not? No, my family moved back to India. So you go back regularly? I go back regularly and I spent a good chunk of the last decade in India, actually. Whereabouts yeah. in? In Bombay. Bombay. Yeah. Mumbai. Mumbai, officially, but. Is that what it is? Officially, but it's the sort of nationalist party that changed the name. So um, old timers and people still for political call it Bombay? reasons. For political reasons, I choose to call it Bombay. Out of Jersey into L.A., you've been here 17. Did you go to grad school or not? I did go to grad school. I went to Columbia, New York, but I studied Greek and Latin. I was in the Ph.D. program for classics. Oh, you weren't doing art? Uh, no. Okay, so how I mean, I was you- making art even while I was in graduate school. So, uh, my BAs were in art and in Greek. So and, why did you decide to go into Greek for the, the grad program? Uh, because I love poetry and I love tragedy and I love comedy and I love the way classic scholars address the sort of semantic valence of a single word, not only in the specific era in which it was written, but also its reception through antiquity. So you're actually looking at 2,000 years of scholars looking at the same goddamn thing. And understanding, sort of, it's a, it's a humbling experience to realize that you know our point of view is just our point of view, and it's such a small portion of like what survived. Exactly. Yeah. It's so, so minuscule. So it's classics is really an act of imagination, right? Because yeah. you're imagining what's missing. You're trying to conjure up a whole world based on scraps. What was your intent then with that when you were going to study? Did you think you were going to come back out of there? Or did you just go there to sort of enrich yourself and sort of figure out where you were? To enrich myself. And it led into your practice. It led into me quitting to build buildings in India for a year with my best friend. Whoa. whoa, whoa. <laughs> Who's an architect who, you know, he, he and his partner, um, Chris, Chris Lee, who teaches at the AAN at Harvard uh, currently, 
uh, my, my friend lives in Bombay and is an architect and they have a company together and they build buildings. Were you doing this and when? Before grad school or? I'd gone back in December, one of, you know, second year of grad school and hung out with him and sketched things out and messed around in his office. And he's like, you know, anytime you want to come, happy to collaborate with you. I'm like, okay, great. So I went back and I quit. Really? <laughs> and I moved to India. So yeah. were you actually building the buildings? Were you, what were you doing? What was we your... were designing um, everything from retail design stores to uh, headquarters for media corporations to a house for a major ad company and you were a working... director, creative director. And the building actually got built. You were working on the designs? We were working on the designs. I grew up building houses with my dad. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, it was really nice. So like as a, as a kid, like my childhood was waking up at 5 a.m., being shook awake at 5 a.m., <laughs> and then going and like pouring concrete or building the houses and doing finished carpentry and everything. There's something really sort of visceral and amazing about putting your hands on something and seeing the, the fruits of your labor come together. That Can sounds very hands-on. I don't think we were quite as hands-on, well, obviously. We were designing, but... But, but you get to see it. You get to see it. That's Absolutely. my point. Once yeah. that thing that you've been working on and it's this tangible element is actually built and like put together, mm -hmm. there's something really re rewarding right. about that, whether it's hands-on or the design. Or... I mean, but we're talking about what, I want to say the year 2000. Yeah. So. Well, that's a um, while ago. That's a while ago. And my, you know, friend was not as successful as they're now teaching yeah. at the A and at the Harvard. Well, that happens after. After many, all these other After things. all these other years. So. Our success rate at designing things and getting things built was, you know. But I got to figure that's like, that's probably a majority of architects and designers sure, and everything sure. to begin with, right? Sure. But now he can, you know, gets to pick better and better projects or maybe that's not the right way, does right he, word to choose, but he gets to. Does have, he still work in India or is he, he? They build all over, but he builds in India. Interesting that you mentioned uh, the Greek and tragedy and comedy and everything. Because looking at your work, doing the research before you came on and looking at everything, the thing that struck me, I think, most of all about the, the pieces was the comedy in the actual work. Everybody, when I was reading about it, it spoke a lot about tragedy and comedy. But can you address that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think I try to make my work, in some sense, um, illogical, absurd, and definitely comic in, um, in that... Um, I mean, it's not laugh out loud comic, but there is something absurd about like it seems getting dry, yourself, but like, yeah, but getting yourself anesthetized and four farm animals for something called petting zoo. I mean, even the title, it's 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 meant to make you chuckle a little. So I, I think the the entry point into that worldview is more a sense of acceptance. And so tragedy and comedy are both things that you kind of have to accept as part of life. So I think what joins them is the sense of acceptance that's binding through through most of the work. I'm thinking about like even the sort of the very, very dry process-based sculptures is essentially comic too. Yeah. Because... Um, like which one? So I saw one where you were painting the leaves of a tree by hand in different colors. Oh, right. That was, that was a... Yeah, that was a performance that made it as a video at the Hayward Gallery right. in London last year. Yeah, I mean, that's just, you know, it's pure joy, it's pure childishness, and it's pure, like, sort of using language 
and abusing it. Like, you know, I'm going to make a landscape painting. Okay, what are the primary colors you need to make a landscape painting? Oh, you need red, yellow, and blue. Let's go make a landscape painting. <laughs> out <laughs> of I'm, the landscape itself. Yeah, Out yeah, of the yeah. landscape itself. Or, yeah, I mean, so there's that sense of absurdity that's oper- operating at a sort of very linguistic well, it, level. It seems that way, too, that the viewer in some of those performances wouldn't know what they're getting into, and then that becomes more clear as it sort of progresses. Correct? Sure. There's definitely more often than not narrative built into the work where there is a some sense of a beginning, big, mi- beginning, middle, middle and end. end. Even if it's edited non-linearly, there's still that awareness that that event took place. Do you think you do that because of studying the classics? Do you build the story within sort of the performances or the pieces so that it does have that sort of narrative? Or is it just your way of working? I usually get ideas as sort of sounds so silly as visions right I mean I just I get this this thought and then it won't let go for like years and then I just decide to make it and so it's not like it's it's hard one in terms of like me trying to address a problem and like going and doing my research and then figuring out how to get all these elements together in this piece no it's it's more like for the ice boat piece for instance um you talk a bit about it yeah I'll actually backtrack so okay. how I ended up in India again in 2006 is also because of my friend who's an architect. The same person. The same person. He was um, doing uh, India's first entry to the Venice Architecture Biennale. He was in charge of it. And so he's like, you and me, and, let's inv- and I suggested we invite another friend of ours. So we collaborated on the entire entry. So we did the, the concept, the idea for the whole thing, and, and I made a couple of films and we really got involved in this fabric of the city and what was missing in the city, including this is like Bombay. parks. This is Bombay. So I went back in 2006 thinking I was just going to do this project, come back. I had a job at Cal State, an offer to do an adjunct work at Cal State LA. I had a residency in, in the Netherlands. But for some reason, I just did not go back. I stayed in India. I didn't go back. I didn't come back to LA. And I didn't go to Was it easier because your family was there, you think? No, I think I was just having too much fun making work. Um, really? Did yeah. you have a studio set up? I was making these films and yeah, I was meeting all these editors and filmmakers and, and it was just fun. And, and one of those times, I, while we were researching the city and what's missing, one of the things that I, I was bringing up was the lack of a relationship between Bombay and the sea. It's, it's an island. Nobody knows that. It's I didn't seven know that. islands put together by the British to create one conglomerate space. And, you know, it's a major port. So me and my friend took a boat around the city, the island. We filmed it. And I've not done nothing with that. But that stayed with me, this this sense of leaving the city and the hullabaloo of the city and then returning to it. And this experience that I wanted to recapture in some way. And it just stayed. And then a couple of years later, it came to me like, oh, I can make a boat out of ice and uh, row it until it melts. And then it took me five years to actually make it happen. But So explain the piece. It's basically a boat made out of ice that I wrote until it melts. In Bombay or where'd you do it? In, I did it in Lake Pavna, which is about three hours outside of Bombay. And how, how long did it take to melt? About 45 minutes. To That's hour, pretty damn quick. Yeah, it's, it's a warm place, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you have to remember, I mean, even though I worked with a, a, a person who builds boats to actually help me you do did. all the calculations and to make the mold, because the mold has to be, water expands unlike any other material. So your mold will crack yeah. with that much water. So I, we needed to reinforce with like 
tons of steel. I needed to work out all the math. I also needed it to float for a sufficient amount of time. That you could video it and actually have it work. Right. I let him do all the math. Calculate um, how long it would take. Right. So it's not that it completely melts. It just melts enough to push me off, right? Because it can't take my weight anymore. Then all of a sudden you're in the water. Right. Exactly. So we had, we had, so it's not like the boat was gone. It's just, it was just couldn't take my weight anymore. Do you still have the mold? Will the, uh, I ditched it. I kept it for about a year. So that's one thing in like performances. Do you feel like you will repeat the performances or do you? Never. Everyone is an individual event. So that's yeah. why you document them with video sometimes? Mm-hmm. All the time? Not. Not all the time. So sometimes it's just for that special, like whoever's there to see it, those mm-hmm. are the people. And then right. what, what's the reason for that choice? Depends on how I feel about it. If I feel um, it actually works as a film and that there I have something new to say uh, through the filmic medium and that the edits will help. So then, what, what's the reason, though, for never doing the performance again? Well, Diana, uh, Diana Campbell Batoncourt from who runs we the should Sapa say Art Summit, that's how we know each other. That's how we know each other. Um, she, um, she actually asked me if I would redo the performance slash installation piece that I did at the Biennale of Sydney earlier this year. And, you know. Which was this one? Which was, um, it's called The Sun's Rehearsal. That's the installation. It looked beautiful, by the way. The the images look really lovely. Yeah, and then then the last, the performance bit is is called In Memory of of the Last Sunset. So you run it together. It's The Sun's Rehearsal in Memory of the Last Sunset. So the installation and the performance then become one conjoined piece, but they have separate titles. And, you know, I was like, no, I would never do it again. And it was for that space. It was done with that particular dancer and her particular histories. Yes, yes. And that particular dancer's history plays a part in that piece. And it was it was that moment in in, in our lives that we chose to explore through this piece. I completely yeah. see how that's all valid. Yeah. It makes sense to me. And in fact, when performances are sort of repeated sometimes, I feel they lose the weight that they had on that initial. Well, it depends. Like, I mean, there could be a performance that's meant to be repeated, as in that's part of its DNA. Yeah. I can completely imagine that happening. It's just I haven't yet done that. I mean, the piece that I just did, um, I did the Biennale of Sydney thing, and then I went to India, and I put together a solo so there was a performance there too, uh, which I've chosen really will end up only as stills. Uh, and it's a sheet of glass, large sheet of glass uh, interposed between me and the tree. I'm just holding, physi- physically holding the sheet of glass and moving it around the tree. Like clock, uh, that sounds incredibly dangerous. Yes, it is. <laughs> Counterclockwise. But in the sort of media line, it doesn't say performance by the artist. It says tree glass a person and i'm very careful about that word a person because i imagine anyone could pick up that piece of glass and do this yeah and maybe me and another point in time in my life would pick up that sheet of glass and do it and then would have a different valence so that was a piece where i can imagine some sort of repeatability and that it's built into its the sense of connection and disconnection with that tree in that particular point in time, but well, that, that tree, moment. in that moment, but then there could be a different tree. Well, it's and nice too that you leave yourself, you're not setting up rules that you can't later break. Mm-hmm. You're allowing yourself the freedom to sort of choose and develop as you want to. And I think like as all artists do, we 
we adjust accordingly as we learn more and right. sort of approach things later on. Right. And it's really... Yeah, it's what you, I mean, it's what you know at this point in time about yourself that makes, and about the world around you that makes it into your work and you change, right? So... How can you not? How can you, exactly. And so how can your work not change? And how can you set up the rules and stuff now that we're going to affect you in 20 years? It makes absolutely no sense. That's right. That's right. It makes no sense. You also talked just now about like having this film and going around and filming the islands, but not using that footage. Mm Mm-hmm. I've done this before as well, too, where you go and you do all this research and you have all these things that maybe this was you were thinking this was going to be the intent and this was going to be the thing that was going to push you forward. But then you don't use it and it leads into it branches into something else. Right. But you still have all of that research or, or that product. How do you deal with all of that? Do you just keep it to yourself? Like all later? All data? Yeah. Yeah, most of the Maybe you'll use it in the future again. Maybe not. I mean, I've kept it right now. I don't always keep everything and I'm terrible with keeping notes and sketchbooks. And I, I am too. I'm horrible. I want to be that person though. <laughs> I want to, do, you know what I mean? I see people like taking notes and doing sketch. I want to be, I, I was like a portrait painter forever and I did mm-hmm. like drawings and everything right. else and I want to be doing sketches all the time. I think something on like Instagram I posted like I was in Vienna recently and I was like, oh, this is the first time I've wanted to sketch in like years and I didn't do it. You know, it's like strange that you should say that. Like the two times that I remember like being driven literally to make sketches and, and once was in Turkey. Um, I was on, you know, I was looking at Greek ruins and I just needed to paint them and draw them. And I, like, I just went out all out and like started yeah. watercoloring on site. And yeah, it's yeah. nothing I had planned. And then 10 years ago, I was in Madrid for Arco and the same um, thing happened and i got so overwhelmed that i went to the art store and bought, and bought bought things went to my friend's house where i was staying and i stayed up all night sketching isn't that amazing when that happens like you yeah. just I, it doesn't happen very often for me but when it does you're just like right but like in your everyday life um how do you keep track of your ideas? I do all? it all in my head. Me too. Like if I'm dead, it's gone. It's all, we're <laughs> fucked. <laughs> I do the exact same thing. But I, when you were talking about visions, and mm-hmm. it didn't sound hokey to me at all because I do the same thing. And I play, if I was going to do a set or something, I'll build it in my head, know that this certain section of it isn't going to work, tear it back down, and then build it back up again and sort of lay all of that out. And then if I have to, I will do like a, a quick sketch just for numbers. So I can figure out sizes and scale. But outside of that, it's all until I get into the moment and start actually building, then I, nobody has any written record of it, Right. which I sort of love. It's not, it feels very personal. Mm-hmm. Also, I think the thing that I used to do is I was very analytical about the way I approached when I first started doing sculpture again out of grad school. I had a, a sort of a a one through 10, like a format. I do this first and I do this and then I do this. I did like this public sculpture and it was all like laid out and it went wonderfully and I had good feedback on it. But what happened afterwards and looking at it like five years later, I'm like, well, shit, wouldn't it have been better if maybe this thing was at an angle like 45 degrees and I decided while I was on site that that's what I should have done, but I didn't give myself any room. Right to adjust and address those issues or sort of play with it and have fun. And when I was looking at your pieces and you do sculpture as well too. Mm-hmm. And when we were talking about the humor and we were just talking really briefly before we started the interview and everything about humor, that humor is sort of a, 
a way to get into the work, at least for me, because it's, it's an accessibility issue where everybody enjoys to sort of like be played with a little bit. Mm. You know what I mean? Like we don't taking ourselves so seriously all the time. And I think it, for, for me, that humor is a way to sort of lighten things up a little bit when you're dealing with like serious issues. But like in some of your, you were talking about them not being outright humorous. It's more like irrational. Um, the, the choices that I make are not rational choices as an artist or as a performer or in terms of setting up the performance. I mean, there are some rules in the performance, They're purposely right? irrational? No, I just think that that's how that they turned out. And looking back, I can say, yeah, that's what I was doing. But I don't think I was... I'm not a very purpose-driven artist. In what way? Like you don't see like an end... You don't be like, I need to address this situation. I'm going to hit it with this. Right. No, there's no problem that I'm setting to solve. I don't think there are problems that one can solve. I don't think anything's solvable at all anyway. So Really? I, I'm interested in showing that things are not solvable, probably, if anything. I feel, I feel much the same way, by the way. Everything ends up, I mean, everything is useless. In our short lives, yes, everything is useful, but ultimately, everything is useless. You just have to sit, sit down and enjoy the stuff that's passing <laughs> you by and, and allow them to enjoy you as you pass by. and Take a day to day. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, this is a random thing, but, like, Growing up, I was not allowed to, for instance, um, kick a rock because you're doing violence not only to the rock, which you are, it was explained to me, but also to yourself because you're engendering these feelings of aggression towards the world outside of you. And so that sort of sense of... Is this a personal family belief or a religious belief? It's probably related to their religion. But it was interpreted through like a personal family moral I guess, yeah. Right. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if other people go around telling their kids... Not to kick rocks. Not to kick rocks, but <laughs> but generally the religion will hold that, you know, the rock has life and you shouldn't, it's a, you know, be nonviolent. <laughs> right. So, but that, that sense of nonviolence that I'm, you know, we're, we're all aggressive people too. It's just how do you get to that space of nonviolence? Well, and how do you address it if you don't work through, like, even those little things... Yeah. And seeing how it is yourself, with, I mean, you don't understand sort of like the, the whole thing, the yeah, bigger so, picture. So that sort of self-awareness is, I think, what's built into the work. So even though it seems like very violent actions, like denuding a tree over the course of a single day, yeah, it's pretty fucking violent. But there's, there's a sense of um, the necessity of the violence and the, un, the illogic of the violence and the... I mean, it's necessary within the world of the film, within the world of the performance, within the world of, that I've created, but it's not necessary in real life. And yet the tree, if I hadn't done that, would have lost all its leaves anyways a few months later. Right. So you're not... So it's, it's kind of like that sort of push and pull with time and space that interests me, we, shifting around those... We can see with the boat. Which you can see with the boat, which you can see with the anesthesia piece, which you can actually see with some of the pieces that I've... So how do you deal with that in the sculptures then? Like the actual physical element? One of the, one of the pieces I saw was like a, a pop balloon. The, do you remember this Oh, one? right. Oh, those are horrible. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's on your gallery's website. By the way, the gallery is Project 88. Right. It's the, in Bombay in India, project88.in. And, um, they show 
they're showing they're representing your, me they're your older work that you <laughs> I actually I, you know what I didn't mind that piece but oh. what struck me about it was there was a sense of like sort of humor and sort of tragedy in this thing of like the pop balloon and everything right too. yeah and I did watercolors of those pop balloons too like a lot of them Are you, you're obviously not doing them anymore no but I don't do <laughs> the same thing over anyways do you okay so this is a good question too so like much like the performances mm-hmm. you deal with the sculptures the same way yeah. I mean, unless I'm working something out. I do a lot of work in series, but it's sort of like in a concentrated space of time. How long? Generally. I mean, everything. I'm not asking you for a very specific on everything, but like, do you do it in like six months or like a year or what do you yeah, do? Yeah, about a year or something. Like yeah. Might, yeah. And then you move on to the next series and. Yeah, then I'm I'm probably over. But having said that, like the last solo show, which has a bunch of woodcuts. At in Project them, 88. At Project 88, which has a bunch of woodcuts. Um, that woodcut piece was conceived in 2003. Oh, really? And I just never did it. But this is exactly what you were talking about earlier, too. You sit with these things for... Very long. Years. Yeah. Well, like the objects in my studio, mm-hmm. I sit with them for years. Right. Sometimes. You don't touch them, but like you sit with them for so long that you sort of figure out what you need to do with them in that time period. Right. I if, mean, like the painting of the tree that was at the Hayward Gallery um, yeah. last year, the, the painting of three camellia trees, I think it was, that comes from something I did as an undergrad where for painting one at UCLA, I think it was Don Suggs, we were supposed to make a landscape painting. I came up, came in with a ficus tree all painted <laughs> 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 uh, in exact verisimilitude. Um, perfect. Perfectly done. Nobody could guess it was not a ficus plant and until really? you actually went close and then you actually observed it closely. I painted the soil, I painted the pot, I painted the stem, I painted everything. And, um, you know, I think some people walked out of this, one of the presentations of that, one of the crits. I think it was... Like walked out because they were frustrated? They walked out of the crit because how could I do that to a plant? I think Jennifer Moon was one of them. Oh, really? <laughs> and... Um, it was one of those uh, moments, and again, that piece came to me. I was taking the bu- three num- three number bus from UCLA to Santa Monica, where I lived, and on the bus, I just had the thought that this is what I'll do, and I did it. It sat with me, and then it came- became this other piece. So, yeah, it's a long, long time period. It's like nearly ten years before I revisit the work. And what I'm working on right now, for I'm doing a solo at Freeze. So let's just mention you have. You have a lot of stuff coming up real quick. So DACA Art Summit, you have a solo. That's in 2018? That's in 2018. Then I have a solo at the Manchester, Manchester Art Gallery in 2017. 17? And I have a solo at Freeze in October. Because Project 80, it's always in the main section of Freeze. And this time, I guess I'm supposed to be doing some work. So I should really thank you for coming on the show because you don't have any time. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about that. I was going through like the list of things. I was like, oh my God, you're busy. <laughs> well, I'm trying to be, but you know, it's not always that way. And I'm not always able to work at the pace I want to work at right now. I'm pretty frustrated about the <laughs> freeze project. In what way? Just getting it done. Like it's, it's, it's come to a point where now I have to like figure out cost effectiveness of doing it in place A versus doing it in place B versus doing it in place C and um, logistics logistics it comes out of the actual creative process and goes into yeah. the logistics of like how are you going to actually accomplish it it gets a yeah. little tedious yeah yeah and it's it's involving um, 
at this point in my head, it's involving rocks, boulders, so it's heavy. Moving. So I need, yeah, it's not something I can do by myself. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see how it works out. I think artists are But it's something I've been thinking about for a very long time, this piece, again. Just came together. Like I decided I'll do this now. That's one of the aspects of a practice that a lot of artists sort of don't pay enough attention to, though, is the actual logistics of like how to actually how to produce the work and have it come to fruition. I'm usually good at that. In this particular case, I changed tack about a month ago. I like decided, your approach, what you were going to yeah, do. Yeah, what I was going to do. I just said I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do this instead. Did what was so. the impetus for that? I guess I had a lot of tragedy in my life, a lot of death, and and um, what I was doing earlier or wanted to do, I'll still do it, but I don't think it made sense now, and I, suddenly this piece made sense now, and my friends are like... You mean addressing those issues and stuff? Addressing just the heaviness. Yeah. And so it sounds literal, heaviness, rock, but it just worked for me. You were... In India then, you said for about 10 years before you came back to L.A.? Well, I guess it would be eight years. But okay, yeah. so eight, roughly. Roughly. I was coming back doing? all the time, but I was there making work. Just I making work the whole time. Uh, yeah, making work. I had a dealer, which, you know, that's great. And a dealer who was able to sell. That's Were they showing better. you the whole time? Um, starting 2007, yeah. Right when the economic downturn like hit the States, too. Uh, it probably hit there, too, and it didn't... You know, I was making work like... I mean, she was funding me making my dealer. Her name's Tree Goswami. I mean, she funded me making that anesthesia piece as a performance project called Petting Zoo. That is amazing. So, I mean, you don't get That's dealers like of. that. Yeah, like, so, yeah, I, I was. Uh, That's really. I was happy to work with her. I uh, I still am happy to work with her. She's an amazing person. That's great. Uh, very supportive. And so, yeah, it's been a good relationship. And um that was a good enough reason to stay there. The reason to move, um, well, I wasn't feeling as embedded over there. In the community? In the community, in the artistic community. LA has a strong community. And I had maintained it. So you kept up all of your relationships? More or less I did, and I was still editing for Extra, even while I was in India, as a contributing editor, but I was still... And then I wanted to get into this as well, too. I had Shauna on the show, and we talked a bit about Extra. So, like, how long had you been working for Extra? I think I... Joined them maybe in, I don't even know, maybe 2008, I want to say, maybe 2009, 2010. Did you, how did you join? Um, you know, I don't remember, but um, I'd been writing for them. Or do you write often? Not very often, but I had written. Yeah. And I think they asked me to join. Is it something you still do or not? I still do. Is it part of your practice, you think? I don't think it's part of my practice. I think it's part of me as a human being. You just need to do it. Yeah. I'm responding to things yeah. and, and learning one of the questions I had had was about dealing with reception of how your work is perceived here and how your work is perceived in India or the South Southeast Asia. Right. It comes down to different histories, you know, different relationships to the West and to the East. I mean, India has its own relationship to uh, the East as, as sort of the home of Buddhism, and it has its own relationship to the West as as the recipient of unwanted uh, colonization <laughs> unwanted interest from britain right exactly colonization sort of proxy wars that the u.s and russia had through india and pakistan where india and pakistan suffer because of something happening outside of right so i mean there's a lot of history built in there part of which i'm aware of and 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 also um the bearer of in my body and in my history and in terms of my education i went to high school there so of course i know all of this but then i went to college here 
I did not go to art school in India. My art school education is very Southern California. It's very much about... It's a know, very specific thing. Which is a very specific even thing. Even in it's the not States. Even in the States. It's, it's you know, uh, the people who were teaching there at that time were Paul McCarthy, Chris Burton, uh, Mary Kelly, Meg Cranston, Sharon Lockhart, Christopher Williams... Don Suggs, um, so Jim on, Welling. So, I mean, it's a very particular you're gonna education. Look, you're going to be looking through the eyes of those individuals when you look at everything anyway. Yeah, it's, it's, it's part of my uh, vision uh, of, of what the past was, you know? The archaeology of art involves Southern California. It includes moments and, uh, and its high points and its low points. And, and I think that's always been a high point, actually. But that's just me. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, so I'm making work in India. And, you know, it's an, a nascent uh, art industry, so to speak. Industry being the operative word because it sort of boomed, I think, in the late 90s, early 2000s. Yeah, it blew and up. Just, it just blew up. And uh, suddenly it was very important. Artists were making enough money to live off. And um, it was a new world in India. But the art educational system is still in some other other world where there are, you know, so-called senior artists or non-practicing artists teaching you, from what I understand. Self-taught. I mean, no, no, they all went to school. It's just I'm... And some of them even went abroad, but... Which just, is fine by in its own right. Self-taught right, is absolutely. completely acceptable. No, absolutely. But, but, you know, the same system of crits where you treat everyone as equal and, um, you know, your instructor is just a guide. They're not the be-all, end-all of the decision-making process. That sort of system, from what I understand, doesn't exist. Having not ever been into the college or university system there, I don't have a very good idea of it, but that's kind of my impression. And then going by how reviews are written and um, things are approached, the writing quality is of a certain nature. It's more journalistic, for lack of a better word. There's not as much discourse. There isn't enough analysis. And I think they're now building an archive of historical materials that were not even available because a lot of the historical materials are in different languages. So they're collating at that. Actually, the Asia Art Archive based in Hong Kong and run by Jane Dubois, amazing woman, also lives in, she's an American, lives in New York, is instrumental in doing a lot of this archival work. Uh, Koj, this uh, amazing artist institution in Delhi, is doing a lot of important work. One of the pieces I did for them in 2008 is a signal example of the sort of reception that my work gets typically in in, in India, India compared yeah. to in LA or people other people who have seen it who are from elsewhere so there was a performance art festival that they were running and they invited me to do a piece for it and knowing that these performance art festivals are these sort of behemoth socialite slash art world hobnobbing, wine-drinking, hors d'oeuvres-eating, festivity type of atmosphere where several performances are happening at the same time in a single venue and people sort of rotate from that one to another. I wanted to control that. I wanted to perform absence in some way. I wanted to perform not performing. I'm like, how do I not perform? How do I, how, how do I avoid being a performing monkey and still perform? And I'm like, okay, I guess my body has to be there. That's a given in performance art. Right. I'm like, and I can put some other bodies in there. I'm like, okay, I'll, this is not exactly how I thought, but it, it actually came to me as a vision, so to speak, but it, it worked, which is that 
I was going to anesthetize myself and four farm animals and the piece is going to be called Petting Zoo. And it's going to be the loss of consciousness of 20 minutes of my experience that they will experience my lack of experience. That's pretty intense. And as it turns out in the, in the live version, I was the only one knocked out. I had the animals wandering around me. I had previously knocked all of us out and videotaped all of that. And that was projected on the walls of the tent behind, but in a, in a situation that was good for the animals, basically. Right. And there was a minder for the animals and I restricted, I built a tent outside the venue uh, which was the Alliance Francaise, because they did not want to do this piece in, on their, inside their buildings. So because like, they saw it as controversial? Because there were animals involved, yeah. Right. So, and I went through the Animal Welfare Board, and I, I mean, I did all this sort of, I moved to Delhi for two months to make this piece happen, and had to convince the anesthesiologist, of course, in my case, because it's a unwarranted, illegal procedure. procedure. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, which was done pro bono and anonymously. Basically, I, I, a friend of mine who's sort of a graphic novelist, also represented by my uh, dealer, introduced me to another friend of his who's a writer as well as a, a doctor, who said, <laughs> I'll introduce you to an anesthesiologist. And these are all people who are sort of, you know, anarchic and off the beaten path and who love Loved doing something that's not normal and um, supported my project. And they said, well, we'll introduce you to this anesthesiologist who's our family anesthesiologist. And then it's up to you to convince him. And I did, you know, but it took some doing, right? I mean, you have to go into the nuts and bolts of the piece and why it's important for you to do it and what it means and the history of performance and the history of everything, which I don't make generally public knowledge. It's just a conversation that's that's necessary well, with you, this, with the vet and with the this person's doctor. a participant in your exactly practice. so exactly. they are all, they're owed that absolutely and um, I actually made him a lovely watercolor of the whole procedure really? later on yeah and gave it to him so his hands are in the thing and my face is in it and oh that's cool that was amazing but you're talking about the reception the reception exactly so. There's this piece that's done once I woke up out of my, my knocked out state, uh, which was about two hours, I think, or I, maybe it was in one and a half hours or whatever it was. I don't remember. It could have been short, could have been long. I don't know. I wasn't there. <laughs> and sort of newspaper journalists were my friends and some other artists were like, oh, we tried to tickle you to wake you up or, and you there was no response. I'm like, what did you think in my head? I was like, out. <laughs> yeah. And they're like, what about the ethics of all of this? How can you do this to other animals? And and doing it to yourself is bad enough. How could you do that? Blah, blah, blah. And there was just all of this moral judgment. You know, my response has always been that I specifically chose domestic animals, domesticated animals that are farm animals, because they're already under duress. And Who's to tell that these 20 minutes are not the only free minutes that they have in their lives because they're already under human, under the human thumb. They're right. already enslaved. But do I have the right to do that? Well, it's a problem. Think about it. And that's what the work is about. It's that's about part of the piece. That's the part of the piece. There were some observers who were visitors from other places, not India, not Asia, from Europe and curators and Uh, museum people who actually came up and talked about how absurdly funny and amazing the piece was and 
I was sort of split in my head. I was like, what is going on? I'm getting these super negative feedback and super positive feedback. Then I finally realized that it has to do with, I, you know, I, it wasn't obvious when it was happening. It was just a day or two later, I realized, oh, everybody who liked it was not from India. Everybody who seemed to have problems was from India. And it probably has to do with their educational system and their awareness of the history of performance and the history of risk-taking and it's the history of... of yeah. Yeah, and the history of, of making work that's contextual in performance, too. We were talking about this briefly earlier, but like uh, Kurt Vonnegut's Pictures of Nothing. Right. In there, there's a really nice statement, and I always sort of bring it up, like because that whole book is based on like how do you get somebody to understand abstract art mm-hmm. or modernist art right. who doesn't have that background or that history mm-hmm. of of arts edu- education and the line, I can't remember it. I'm going to paraphrase it, but it basically was, it's like anybody who has sampled something for an extended period of time, like wine, mm-hmm. food, sex, the more you participate and you understand it, the better you you refine your sensibilities to that thing. Right. So becoming a participant and being educated in that is a part of being exposed to it over an extended period of time as well too. Absolutely. And that might actually have been, I don't know if it was the first or the second performance festival that Kojit put together in India. And there wasn't a huge history of work like that over there. Whereas, you know, I was making performances while I was a student here in the 90s. I was making video work in the 90s. Your teachers were (laughs) extreme performance (laughs) artists. Right. Yeah. So it's, 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 um, it's a sticky subject and sort of a hard... It's a hard place to be in India and because I owe my career to the community over there that has welcomed me and embraced me and is showing me and you know is allowing me to have a, a collector base of any sort at all. Yeah. At the same time, my friends there tend to be non-artists. They're all actors, theater people musicians, architects, film editors, filmmakers, um, actual artists, not my close friends. Whereas in LA, they're absolutely my close friends. Those are, those are the people I want to see every day, all my life forever and ever. But you know what? This would be no different than if I was still living in Iowa where I'm from. Mm -hmm. There isn't, if it doesn't exist or not even it doesn't exist because the artists do exist in India, that type of thing. But if that dialogue just doesn't exist for what you're specifically doing Mm -hmm. and you, what you're doing is based out of LA. So it's natural for you to be back in LA in that community having that conversation. Exactly. Exactly. So it's, uh, it's going to be an interesting few years because I will be showing uh, in India and here, hopefully, eventually, (laughs) somebody will say, I want to do a show with you. Yeah. It's just, um, keeping that balance where I am addressing concerns that I have having grown up in India. And I think my religious background has affected my work in many ways, like this aspect of nonviolence and my struggle with violence and, um, my struggle with extreme emotion, like wanting extreme emotion in my work in a very controlled way. (laughs) (laughs) Only a little bit. Yeah. (laughs) Well, just access. I want people to have access to emotion through the work. Yeah. I don't want to cut it off. 
which I think you see in all the pieces. Right. I, I really do. Like all of the individual works. And I think that's one of the things that struck me too when I was looking, not just the comedy, but there, everyone's emotional in a way. And maybe it's not necessarily comedic. Maybe that's not what I was like pulled to. Maybe it's that emotional state and the fact that each one of them resonates. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's not a single emotion either. It's very complex. Exactly. And it, it would be too uh, sort of trite to mm-hmm. boil it down to a single emotion. Right. Because that's not how we exist anyway. That's something that I'm interested in, and I've, I'm sure I owe it to my life there as well as my life here. And I wouldn't want that to be, I wouldn't want my work in India to be a rejection of LA or my work in LA to be a rejection of India in any way whatsoever. It's neither or. It's neither nor. And, and, but people are always asking me, so where do you prefer living, LA or Bombay? What's your favorite city? And, you know, it's like a really difficult question because I always have to answer, I love cities. Well, because Ask I'll, me, you know, to go to rural Iowa. I'm not going to do that. Because Ask that's, me to a, go to, that's a label. Yeah, it's All a label. All of a sudden you're being labeled. Yeah, that's right. Brings it back to the idea of labels. I'm not just... I. You don't need to be labeled. I don't want to be labeled. I don't... Nor should you be. Yeah. It yeah. totally makes sense. I just, the labels on the system in general anyway, like the, the whole idea that you curate a show and it's called Younger Than Jesus and nobody is allowed to be in the show that is over a certain age mm-hmm. blows my mind. Right. I don't, like, what, all of a sudden, like, what, what's that? I get it as far as a strategy to curate because you can't come up with an idea other than I'm going to pick people under this age that I'm interested in. But you're not getting this range of, like, really interesting work that, like, shows... It's even, you, you see it even like made in LA a little bit too, I think. Mm-hmm. Some of those people don't even live in LA anymore. Right. Do you know what I mean? So you do a made Or some people who have just recently moved. Yeah. So how is that you're, and this is a thing as well, like LA is such a, it's such a weird animal that like just getting here and understand, it's taken me, I've been here what, five, six years now and I don't get it. Mm. You, you know, like, right. it, but I don't think like sticking a label on it, curate what you want to curate, but like to, to segment these things and sort of break them up in that way, doesn't do anybody justice. I don't think. Yeah. I mean, the younger than Jesus show. And I, I you know, um, I guess and Lauren is not Lauren Cornell is not yeah. exactly, um, younger than 33. Either. Right. No. So <laughs> that's like, uh, <laughs> that's another odd thing, but I mean, there's nothing wrong with seeing what a particular generation is doing if you actually think that it's going to generate something, but that's, and it probably does. I, I mean, I didn't see that show, so I don't know. Yeah, it's, you know, it is true that you've seen less at that age and you've experienced less typically, uh, unless you've had an unfortunately full life or fortunately full life. No, I but, think, but you know, the type of work you will make when you're young are high. Just is different. I mean, I I didn't make work that I think is worthwhile before I was 33. I don't think I made any good work before I moved to L.A. Yeah. To be honest with, I mean, no, that's not true. Yeah. I made some good work in New York, but like I think for the most part, my work came into its own when I came to L.A. And that's I'm 30. I just turned 39. I mean, we're talking my early 30s, and I was still making stuff that I didn't consider sort of figured out in my own way right? within myself. Right. I mean, I'm at a point, I mean, I think it happened to me when I went to Bombay. Really? And I don't think I was making work before then that, I mean, I had shows, but. That you wouldn't want to show, that you would show now or like, well, you probably wouldn't show. I'm I'm not that like I'm, 
it's just it wasn't it wasn't a smooth sort of it wasn't it didn't come out of me smoothly let's yeah. just say yeah, it wasn't yeah. it wasn't something that i felt was representative of me even at that point in time like even when i was 26 making that work and when i was 26 well was it about me at 26 was it responding to the world in an adequate way no it wasn't uh neil young was just on the mark maron show oh wow and he had this amazing sort of thought and it, it relates to artists who was Genuine. But he had a beautiful song when he was like, what, in his 20s? I know. Age. He was like remarkable. He's right. like a... <laughs> <laughs> About guy. him and but the guy at the um, ranch where he, he moved had, to, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's... he bought, yeah, I mean... Was, he's amazing. But yeah. what he said, though, about writing music was that if you're having a hard time coming up with it and then you're struggling to deal with it and you have to sort of figure it out, then it's not working. Mm -hmm. And he only writes when he is doing it with ease Mm -hmm. because those are the songs that actually work. And I think there's something to be said about like what you said about that and dealing with my own studio and like how that comes together. Yeah, I'm just doing things with ease. You're right. And it's ease is the right word where, you know, you don't fight it. You're just doing things because... You're just doing it. And I think you figure those things out. Like later you can go back to it and be like, oh, I made that because of this, this, mm -hmm. and this. And you can relate to it. And you're like, of course that's why it is. And it does have these meanings. And, they're, and it's wholly figured out. And it has this underpinning sort of like structure but you don't need to be stressing on all that shit when you're putting it together yeah because you've absorbed it all and it's just coming out it's just coming out yeah, yeah exactly whereas before the i can see that the same ideas that i'm interested in now are in the work even you know the earlier work but they were not you didn't have a way you didn't have a voice to express it probably then. yeah yeah it yeah. wasn't me yeah it was me plus a lot of other <laughs> <laughs> other uh, uh, noise yeah yeah yeah, yeah. If you're an Indian artist and you're or, or South Asian artist and you're producing work from South Asia, you're from there, labels. And if you're labeled as a South Asian artist and not just an artist, how does, do you see that as sort of, I could see that as being a hindrance because you're walking around with a label that then it puts you in a position that, oh, you're curated into the South Asian artist show. Right. <laughs> I try not to engage with that whole anything to do with uh, identity. So whether it's queer, feminist, um, Indian, South Asian, city, urban versus I, I try not to obviously incorporate that in any way into my self-presentation. Yeah. Even if there might, you know, there are strains of that in some, in my work, I, it won't be um, something that's, uh, quite prevalent i'm just more interested in a, a more universal address it's more broad it's not as if uh curators are knocking down my door to put me in south asian <laughs> south asian group shows um they aren't well and i'm not specifically but thinking about again, your work but then again i have been categorized as such and have gotten opportunities because because of that i think there's a spencer museum which is in kansas show opening sometime later this year that um, has my work in it. and um, So it's not all negative. I, they're showing, I think, from what I understand, Chinese and Indian artists, maybe others, I don't know. I like the curator. I've met him. I've had a relationship with him for a few years. Um, the museum owns my work. They're not showing that work. They're showing some other work. It's okay as long as they don't, like I, I'm very specific in my conversation with them, as long as you don't market me like that, yeah. if you if you if yeah, in yeah, your yeah. in your material, as long as you don't do that, I'm okay. 
Well, and also I think for you, from what I've learned mm-hmm. briefly over this last like 40 minutes, <laughs> is that you deal with the situation as the situation comes up. Right. And the individuals are wholly different from each other and dealing with an individual or institution. Completely, yeah. Every single one of them you address as you come to it. Mm-hmm. And you're not going to make a rule for yourself that says, right. which is admirable. Yeah, I'm trying to be open. It's nice to go about it in a way that addresses it as it right, sort of comes ad hoc. together. But having said that, I do have one rule. Like if there are curators who have a specific idea that they want work for. Um, you mean that, like you telling you to make something? Yeah, I pretty much say no. Yeah, fuck I that. have done that all the time. Yeah, because nothing good comes out of that generally. I don't know. I, I well, what what are you going to get out of it? Depends if it's yeah if it's if it's something that I feel like I already have an idea for. Maybe. Maybe, but I don't want to be subsumed under somebody else's. Um, the Sydney Biennale piece was commissioned. But they let you go with your own idea, and it was something that I had. Yeah, no, it's something I had planned years in advance. Right. So it was wholly you. Yeah, it was wholly me. I, in fact, I had a grant, two grants, separate grants, to work on that earlier on that project. And so this was just one avatar of it. And hopefully the video that will be edited and there's a series of drawings that are based on a bunch of research I did in the astrophysical archives in South India. That's what I had got one of the grants for to work with a astrophysicist. And so there are a bunch of drawings that came out of that. So the piece is kind of like a birth and death piece. So the drawings are based on the solar scientists' daily recordings since 1903 at that particular observatory of the sun's activity, whether it's solar prominences, flares, um, what have you. And then they have these very systematized ways of making these drawings. So I went through all their archives, and I really got attracted to these drawings. And I'm like, okay, what the fuck am I going to do? They, it's like volumes and volumes and volumes of drawings. And in fact, their volume started in 1904, I discovered the 1903 drawings unarchived (laughs) in an envelope or something. And um, so I'm like, what am I going to do? And so I, I, it came to me again um, that I was going to work with the nine months that I was in my mother's womb when I didn't see the sun, but I was a beneficiary of it. So those are the drawings that I picked from that entire set of like, you know, 100 years of drawings. Those are the drawings that I'm working on, over drawing and whatever. So that's like one set of drawings. And then there's this Sydney Biennale piece, which is about the last sort of final fatal sunset um, that all of humanity will at at one point experience or one person will experience, depending on who. I myself and within my limited time span will also experience my last sunset. So everyone will experience some last sunset at some point in time. And so I wanted to work with this sort of cliched idea of this, you know, romantic sunset and also bring in this final fatal sunset into it. And so there was, so I'm kind of trying to balance some sense of like beginning and some sense of ending. Finality. In this work. And I'm I'm talking to an institution. We don't know if it'll actually work out or not, if I'll show it there, so... So how would the, and the performance piece doesn't exist beyond it doesn't what exist. already happened. So it then it's happened. just the drawings. It's just the drawings and the film, I, which I haven't even gotten the footage of yet. So I have no idea of all the performances because the billboard, it's, it's a huge billboard size, monumental sized um, 
um, installation. It's a single wall with seven layers of photographs on it. It's really I, beautiful. Like took. I said, it's really gorgeous. Thank you. And then the last image that you see on top, the eighth image is actually one produced by a Hollywood um, special effects firm that specializes in astrophysics and uh, cosmological visualizations called Omnicosm, of course. There are these eight layers on this billboard by sized wall with the sun cut out in all of them, a curtain in place of the sun. And over the course of the performances, which is quite narrative actually in its own way, the wallpaper gets peeled off in parts and layers are exposed in a sort of peeling Bruin version of itself. So that trajectory of hopefully in the rushes when I get them, that will be evident. And then I hope to be able to incorporate other research that I've done earlier and create a film into a whole into a, a, a film that's more not only about that installation or, or that performance but about something else that I want to address do you think of it as a single work or as individual pieces like is each drawing its own individual thing or no the drawing is a, is, a, is a single work it's yeah. a single piece and how many will be total in there guesstimate no I actually you do uh, know I do know I reduced it from every single day of the nine months to one per week. Wow. So that's about 40. How, this is, how close are you to being done? Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> the drawings are in India and I am here. <laughs> <laughs> Enough said. Because <laughs> I moved here in 2015 to teach at CalArts and I didn't... Um, what are you teaching? I was teaching for one semester. I was a visiting artist, yeah. full-time, but it was a visiting artist gig. I didn't know that I was going to stay. I, really? I came in the hopes that I would be able to stay. I still had my studio in L.A. that I'd maintained all these years. I'd sublet it, but I'd kept it for the 10 years. And That's um, very forward-thinking. So... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I, you know, at the end of my term at CalArts, I got back my sublet and stayed on. And I, int- I kind of wanted to do that. I just didn't know how feasible it would be. Well, this is exciting. Yeah. Um, thank you for being on the show. You're welcome. It's been a really wonderful talk, and it's been nice to uh, get to know you. So uh, thank you. Thanks, Jason. 